last week, uh, Pastor Steve did, I thought, just an incredible job navigating through what was really a quite difficult passage as we were looking at 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you missed his teaching last week, I would really encourage you, go download the podcast or go onto our YouTube channel and you need to listen to what Steve said last week about being submissive to the government. It was a challenging message last week, but I have to tell you, this week is no less of a challenging passage as well. Because Peter has been writing to Christians who are facing persecution. And he is reminding us as his readers that we are not part of this world. That we are sojourners, we're exiles in this world. But God still has a role for us in this world because as Jesus followers, he says, we are his chosen people. We are a royal priesthood, which means God has chosen us to bring the message of Jesus to this world. It's all summed up in in verse 12 of chapter two, where Peter says, keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter says that these persecuted Christians need to conduct themselves honorably. And they need to do that honorably before unbelievers so that God can be glorified. After that verse, then Peter goes into three specific situations where they should apply this requirement to act honorably. There are three different relationships where we need to conduct ourselves with honor. The first, as Steve showed us last week in verses 13 through 17, is that we should have honorable conduct in our political relationships. And so as we read last week, we are to be subject to our government and we are to honor the emperor. Secondly, what we're gonna see this week in verses 18 to 25 is that we should have honorable conduct in our social and our economic circumstances. And so servants are to be subject to their masters with all respect. And then next week in chapter three, verses one through seven, we're gonna see that we need to have honorable conduct in our familial relationships where it says that wives are to be subject to their husbands and likewise husbands are to honor their wives. And the purpose of all three of these examples is the same, that through our humble conduct before non-Christians, they might see how we live and then give glory to God. As we interact with this world as sojourners and exiles, that's our aim, that God would be glorified in the way in which we act in this world. So we are called to glorify God. We're not called to glorify ourselves. We're not called to promote our comfort and our well-being. We're not called to win a culture war. We're called to glorify God through our honorable conduct before unbelievers. And so this morning, we're gonna see how to have that honorable conduct in the context of social and economic relationships. And we see this right in verse 18. Look at verse 18 again. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. The the point of this sentence is really quite clear. Peter says that servants need to submit, they need to obey, they need to have respect for their masters, even if their masters are cruel and unjust. It's really clear. There's no ambiguity in the text. The, The reason why this verse is challenging is not because we can't understand what it says. The reason why it's challenging is because we don't like what it says. Take, for example, the word servant here, this word servant. In the English Standard Version that we just read, this word, this verse is, or this word is translated as servant. But some of you may have different translations. For example, the New International Version doesn't translate this as servant. It translates it as the word slave. 
And slavery brings up for us a whole bunch of emotional triggers, doesn't it? So, so why is there this discrepancy? Why did some translators translate this as servant and others translate it as slave? Well, when we think of slavery today, we most immediately think of the enslavement of the Africans in the American South in the 1800s. But in the context of the Bible, the institution of slavery was very different than 19th century American slavery. First of all, slavery in the time of the New Testament was not racially based. In, in America, slavery was based upon deeply held racist ideas that Africans and people of color were inherently inferior and therefore deserved to be enslaved. But in the time of the Bible, slavery was not racial at all. Slavery was social and it was economic. People were made slaves not because of the color of their skin, but typically they were made slaves either because they were captured in war or because they were so poor that the only way they could survive was to sell themselves into slavery for a time. Secondly, slavery in the time in the New Testament wasn't a permanent situation. Slaves were often paid, and those slaves could save up their money and buy themselves out of slavery. In fact, in the second century, there was a Roman emperor named, Pre named Pertinax, and he was the son of a former slave. And so this kind of social mobility in the first century Roman Empire, while not common, was at least possible for slaves. And so therefore, knowing the difference between what we think of as 19th century American slavery and first century slavery in the Roman Empire, the translators of the English Standard Version didn't want us to get confused and said, let's instead use the term servant rather than the term slave. However, I think the term servant has its own issues. Because when I think of servant, I think of Downton Abbey, you know, with, with butlers and, and housemaids and footmen and those sorts of things. And that's not the right picture either. Because a servant slave in the time of the New Testament couldn't just decide to quit their job. They, they couldn't just decide, hey, I have had enough of this, I'm out of here. A servant slave in the time of the New Testament was in a place where the master had complete authority over their slave for as long as they were their property. And at the end of the day, they were still the property of another. So Peter here is talking about a social structure that falls somewhere between our modern notions of servanthood and slavery. It's somewhere in the middle. But even in that context, slavery was inherently cruel and it was an inherently unjust institution where one person legally owned another. So if slavery, even in this context, was so cruel, if it was really that unjust, why in the world does Peter tell slaves or servants that they are to submit to their masters even if their masters are cruel and unjust? For that matter, why doesn't Peter or any of the New Testament authors condemn slavery outright? We never see that in the New Testament. Well, to answer that question, we have to first understand that the church was not a major social force in the first century. At the time that 1 Peter was written, Christians had very little influence in the world. The church was a small, persecuted minority. And according to its critics at the time, the church was mostly made up of women and slaves who had no, no authority within the culture. So Peter here is not writing a social commentary on the evils of slavery and how we need to change societal structures. There would have been no chance for the church to affect that kind of social change. So instead, what Peter is doing is he's helping slaves who are in the church to know how to live, to know how to glorify God within that existing social structure. 
But that does not mean that the Bible endorses or condones slavery. Just the opposite. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells slaves that if they can gain their freedom, they should do so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, Paul says, Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. Okay, that was a great history lesson, but what does that have to do with us today? Because we no longer live in a society where slavery is the dominant social structure. Nonetheless, most of us have jobs where we work underneath the authority of somebody else. We have a supervisor, we, we have a manager, we have a boss. And sometimes our boss can be difficult to work under. So just as Peter tells servants that they should respectfully submit to their masters, I think that we can extrapolate this command and say that we should be respectfully submissive to our employers as well. That means that we should be working diligently. We should be working with a good attitude towards our boss, even if they're not very nice to us. In other words, we should have an attitude of submission in the workplace. We should have an attitude of submission. Last week, Pastor Steve did a great job of defining and explaining this biblical concept of submission. So we're not gonna go over that again. Nonetheless, I do know that some of us really struggle. We bristle at the very word submission. One of the hallmarks of American culture is that we like our independence. We don't like people telling us what to do. We're taught to question authority. And if we disagree with a leader, we're told that we don't have to obey them. In fact, we're told that if we disagree with somebody in authority, we need to stand up for ourselves. But that's exactly the opposite of what Peter says here in 1 Peter chapter 2. And Peter's not alone in this. Submission is taught as a foundational Christian virtue throughout the New Testament. You will find extended teaching on submission in the book of Romans, in Ephesians, in Colossians, in Philippians, in 1 Timothy, in Titus, and in our passage here in 1 Peter. This is not an isolated concept. This is not a foreign idea. It is the backbone of what the Bible says should be our posture as a Jesus follower. Submission should be the default posture of every Jesus follower. Submission should be the default posture of every Jesus follower. Paul, I think, summarizes it best in Ephesians 5.21, where he says that a spirit-filled Christian is one submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That we should be submissive to one another. Why? Because we have reverence for Christ. And as we're going to see in a few minutes, submission is the mark of a spirit-filled Christian because submission is the mark of the life of Jesus. People, authority is constituted by God. So submission is an expression of our faith in the sovereignty of God. An attitude of submission shows that we believe that God is ultimately in control over political, social, economic, and even household authority structures. And living a life of submission in today's anti-authoritarian culture gives us the perfect opportunity to display our allegiance to God and to bear testimony to his sovereignty. And note that Peter says that this submission should be accompanied by respect. That submission and respect have to go together. See, most of us are going to obey our boss because we don't want to get fired, right? So of course we're going to do what they say. 
But then we go on and we, we complain about what our boss says. We act passive aggressively. We complain about it to our coworkers. Yeah, we obey them, but sometimes we'll just do the bare minimum of what we have to do to get by. But Peter says that submission and respect go together. That we shouldn't be grudgingly obedient, doing what our boss says and then complaining about it, but we should be obeying them in a way which respects and honors our boss. That we are to be subject with all respect. And now we come to the hardest part of Peter's command. Because look again what it says in the last half of verse 18. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. When Peter tells slaves to be subject to their masters, he's not just talking about good and gentle masters. He's talking about unjust masters. Crooked, corrupt, cruel masters. And by extension, that means we're to be subject to our boss, not just when they're nice to us, but when they're mean to us when they're crooked, when they're corrupt. So does that mean that if my boss is abusive or let's say my boss is sexually harassing me that I I just have to take it? I just have to subject myself to it? That I can't do anything about that? That's a great question. So let me answer it this way. In most situations of abuse or harassment in the workplace, this is also against the law in our country. Likewise, most companies have policies in place to report and deal with situations of harassment. So when we avail ourselves of legal remedies or company policies, we are still respecting authority, just an authority that's above our boss. We're submitting to governmental authorities. We're submitting to corporate authorities. And I would suggest to you, in fact, that if we see someone suffering abuse or harassment in the workplace, that it is submissive attitude for us to, uh, to report that to the governmental or the corporate authorities. And in some cases, it's actually required that we report that. That we can and should take action against injustice. But, when, but one can act against injustice without engaging in personal retaliation and with still having respect for those authorities. And here's the key takeaway. It's not our manager's character that determines how we should respond in such situations. It's the character of Christ that determines how we should respond. Our conduct is determined by Christ-like character, not the character of the person in authority over us. So in all situations, we should still have an attitude of submission and respect for those in authority, even our boss. Now, unfortunately for the slaves that Peter's addressing here in this letter, There was no legal remedy if they had an abusive boss. A slave couldn't call the confidential human resources 1-800 number to report incidences of harassment or abuse. In fact, under Roman law, the master had such authority over that slave that they could even determine their very life and death. So Peter knows that when he's asking slaves to submit to authority, he is asking them to suffer. He He is telling them that they will endure unjust treatment Peter's not naive about this. So in verses 19 to 25, Peter gives us four reasons why we should submit to authority, even if it's costly to us. And we can identify those four reasons with the word for, F-O-R. We see the word for in verse 19, verse 20, verse 21, and verse 25. Look in your Bible and see if you can identify them with me. In verse 19, it says, we can endure injustice for it is a gracious thing to suffer unjustly. In verse 20, we can endure injustice for there is no credit if we suffer for the consequences of our sin. 
In verse 21, we can endure injustice for we have been called to suffer with Christ. And finally, verse 25, we can endure injustice for we have the protection of the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. So let's take a look at these four reasons why we should submit to authority even if it results in our suffering. So the first reason again, we should submit to authority even when it's costly is in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Servants should submit to their masters for it is a gracious thing to suffer unjustly. Now, it doesn't often feel like it when we're suffering unjustly that we are, un- that we are receiving the grace of God, that, that we have this undeserved gift from God. But God's blessing and God's favor is upon us when we suffer unjustly. It is a gracious thing. I mean, if you're suffering, especially if you're being persecuted for your, for your faith in Christ, it may feel like God has abandoned you. But Peter says God has not abandoned you in that. In fact, he is pouring out his grace on you amidst your suffering. But there's a condition to this grace because he says, mindful of God. Mindfulness is a really popular concept in today's culture. You can uh, download mindfulness apps on your phone. You can hire a mindfulness coach to take you through mindfulness exercises. So mindfulness has is, is, got all the attention right now. But when Peter says that we need to be mindful, that's not what he's talking about. Because mindfulness is only as good as what you are being mindful of. And Peter says that we need to be mindful of God. And the only way that we can endure suffering is to be mindful of him. That means paying attention to God. It means being aware of his promises. It means thinking and meditating on his word. And when we are suffering for doing right, it becomes a gracious thing when we become mindful, when we stay focused on, when we remember God and his word. And when we stay focused on God, our patience, endurance through suffering becomes that gracious gift from him. For it is a gracious gift to suffer unjustly. The second reason that we should submit to authority, even when it's costly, is in verse 20. Verse 20 says, for what credit is it if when you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Servants should submit to their masters because there's no credit if we suffer for the consequences of our sin. One of the reasons that we can endure injustice is because we know that God will reward us for our suffering. We will receive credit from God. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But there is no credit, there is no reward if we suffer because we do something stupid or sinful. In that case, our suffering is just the natural consequences of our behavior. So if you grumble when your boss tells you something to do, and then you don't get the promotion you wanted, you're not suffering unjustly there. If, if you don't show up for work on time, and then you get fired, that's not suffering for Jesus, people. That's just the natural consequence of your lack of submission. And this is true not just in the workplace. If we treat others poorly and then they don't want to hang out with us, people, that's not suffering for your faith. If you, if you uh, are mean or insulting on social media and then you get canceled, that's not suffering for Christ. 
That's just reaping what you sow. And not only are you not gaining any credit from God for that, you are in fact turning people away from Christ. 1 Timothy 6.1 says this, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their masters as worthy of all honor. Why? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. If people know that you are a follower of Jesus, but then you act disrespectfully or disobediently in the workplace, we are causing God's name and God's word to be reviled. We are maligning the character of Christ and we're driving people away from Jesus. How we should work should be bringing glory to God, not embarrassment to him. For there is no credit if we suffer for the consequences of our own sin. The third reason why we should submit to authority, even when it's costly, is in verse 21. For to you, for to this, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Servants should submit to their masters, for we have been called to suffer with Christ. It's our calling. We have been chosen by God for this purpose. It sounds crazy, but suffering for do the right thing is our calling. Sometimes we think that we must be outside of God's plan for our lives because life isn't going well, because we're suffering. But Peter, Peter tells us that if we're suffering for doing good, we are smack dab in the middle of God's will for us. That's why later in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as if something strange were happening to you. It's no accident that we suffer for doing good. It's not bad luck. It's not an unfortunate incident. It's part of our calling as a Jesus follower. When God the Father calls us into salvation, he also calls us into suffering for doing good. It's part and parcel of the calling. You can't separate the call to salvation from the call to suffer. That's why Jesus in Luke 14, 26 says that we are to count the cost before we decide to follow him. Because suffering unjustly for doing good is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. My fellow Jesus followers, if you don't want to suffer for doing good, you pick the wrong role model. Because what does Jesus say in John 15, 18? John 15, 18, Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. As a Jesus follower, our calling is to be like Christ. So what does that mean to be like Christ? Well, what did Jesus do when he faced unjust authority? He submitted to that authority. He submitted to the religious leaders. He submitted to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And what was the result? They crucified him. And even though he was treated unjustly, he didn't fight back. He refused to retaliate. Look at verse 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In these verses, it says that there's three ways that Jesus sets the example for us when suffering unjustly. First, Jesus sets the example by not sinning when suffering. And Peter emphasizes this by pointing to one particular sin, the sin of deceit. So why would he use this sin? Why does the sin of deceit kind of stand in for this? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First, it would have reminded his readers of an Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, 9, it says that the Messiah 
that in the Messiah there was found no deceit in his mouth. But I also think it points out that when we are unjustly accused, our temptation is to start bad-mouthing our enemies. But Jesus had no deceit. He didn't create lies and falsehoods about those who are persecuting him, and he never misled people to emphasize his point. He had no deceit. Secondly, Jesus sets the example by not seeking revenge. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. He didn't trade insult for insult. He didn't fight fire with fire. He spoke well of and gave respect to those who were persecuting him. Jesus never threatened. He never looked for a way to retaliate. He didn't look for a way to make them pay for their injustice. And instead of threatening them, what did he do while he hung on the cross? He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Third, Jesus sets the example by trusting God the Father to be the judge. Jesus could endure through this unjust treatment because he knew that he could rely upon his Father to bring about justice. He didn't need to make sure that those who were persecuting him would pay because he knew God would bring them to justice, that God would bring judgment to his persecutors. Jesus knew that he would be vindicated by God. He didn't have to defend himself. He didn't have to stand up for himself. He knew that one day God would defend him. God would stand up for him. And that's the pattern that Jesus lays out for us. If a slave is being un being treated unjustly by his master, God will ensure that that master will be held accountable for their cruelty. Therefore, the slave does not need to malign, threaten, or seek revenge on their master. Likewise for us, if we're being treated poorly by a manager at work or a professor at school or by the government, we do not need to ensure that justice will be served because we can trust in a just judge who will hold those in authority accountable for their abuse of that authority. And it's because of the ultimate justice of God that it gives us the freedom to persevere and to endure any suffering. But Jesus didn't just endure persecution to set an example for us. Jesus endured persecution and suffering and ultimately died so that he could secure our salvation. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Again, Peter is referencing this Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 53. This time, Isaiah 53 verses four and five, which says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The Bible tells us that our sin leads to death. And each of us has rebelled against God's authority. And the penalty for that rebellious authority is death. But when Jesus died on the cross, he died to pay for our sinful rebellion. He bore our sins when he died. And for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, it says now we are dead to sin, but alive to righteousness. In other words, by identifying with Christ, our sins are now transferred to Jesus and they become his sins. And likewise, his righteousness is transferred to us and it becomes our righteousness. And so when we transfer our sins to Jesus, he then takes those and he bears them on the cross. And when that righteousness of his is transferred to us, then we are given new life because we receive the same power that, rose, that raised Jesus from the dead. 
And so Peter, quoting Isaiah, reminds us that it's through his wounds that we are healed. Now, this does not have in mind a physical healing. Rather, this picture of a wounded body is a metaphor for our spiritual state before God. And through the physical wounds of Jesus on the cross, we have been healed of our spiritual wounds. Jesus was willing to be treated unjustly. He was willing to give up his rights. He was willing to be deprived of his freedom. And he was willing to be crucified. Why? So that you and I could be saved. Because our salvation was more important to him than his life. So here's the question. Are we willing to be treated unfairly if that means somebody else might be saved? Would we be willing to give up our rights so that someone else could hear the gospel message? Would we be willing to give up our comfortable lives for the sake of the gospel? Is the message of Jesus that important to us? Some of us protest every little infringement of our rights. We're quick to call out when the government overreaches. We're, we're quick to complain when our employer or our school makes us feel slighted. And some of us think that it's our Christian duty to stand up for our rights and our liberties. And let's be honest, during the pandemic, Christians were amongst the loudest, crying out about how oppressive the government was towards us. But what seemed to be missing in all of these controversies over the last few years, what seemed to be missing from the conversation was, how does our position impact the gospel? When evaluating our position against all of these issues, how many of us actually stopped and asked the question, does this viewpoint of mine promote or hinder the proclamation of the gospel. Now, some of you are getting a little uncomfortable with what I'm saying there. You're thinking, okay, you're getting really close to talking about politics there, Ken. And in fact, some of you are probably texting Pastor Steve right now saying, you better get back from the retreat. Ken's gone off the rails. But listen to me. I'm not trying to make a political statement here. I'm just asking the question, to what extent would you be willing to let go of your rights and your freedoms so that someone else could hear the gospel? How willing are you to give up your comfortable lifestyle so that somebody else could be saved? Now, some of you are asking, aren't we justified? And aren't we in some senses obligated to stand up for our rights? That's a legitimate question. And the answer is yes, but it's a qualified yes. Look, I'm not saying we don't have rights. I'm not saying that we shouldn't stand up for our freedom. The Apostle Paul invoked his rights as a Roman citizen before the magistrates in the book of Acts. But I also know that Paul would have given up all of his rights as a Roman citizen if it meant that the gospel would be advanced. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. My concern is that many of us spend more time and energy talking about our rights as an American than we do about the need for the gospel to be proclaimed to a dying world. And it feels like maybe our priorities have gotten mixed up. The message that Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins should be more important than our liberty. And we should be willing to give it all up. We should be willing to give up our rights. We should be willing to give up our very lives if that would mean that more people would be saved because the gospel message is worth dying for. Amen. 
Listen, I'm not saying that you all need to become martyrs. Most of us will never be in a position where we need to give up our lives for the gospel. But can we at least be respectfully submissive to our boss, even if he's a jerk for the sake of the gospel? I mean, if we can't show respect for our boss, why would they ever bother to listen to us if we tried to tell them the message of Jesus? If we are lazy and don't do what our boss asks, and then we say, hey, come to church with me on Sunday, why would they ever come? In Titus 2, 9 and 10, the apostle Paul says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? So that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Our submissiveness to those in authority adorns the doctrine of God, our Savior. It's like putting a decoration on the gospel message. So if we care about the gospel message, if we care about the salvation of others, if we want to share the hope that's within us, then our submissive attitude at work or in school or in the marketplace becomes that adorning decoration that will open up the door to the gospel. We have seen this morning that we should be submissive to authority even when it's costly. For it is a gracious thing to suffer unjustly. There is no credit if we suffer for the consequences of our sin and we have been called to suffer with Christ. And now the final reason that we should submit to authority, even when it's costly, is in verse 25. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. Peter is once again quoting from Isaiah 53, where we are compared to sheep who have gone astray. But the good shepherd has come after us. The good shepherd has laid his life down for us, and he's brought us back to into his fold. And this metaphor of the sheep and the shepherd is found throughout the Bible, but probably the most famous is in Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Because Jesus is the shepherd and the overseer of our souls, we need not fear an unjust government We need not fear a cruel master. We do not need fear a mean boss. Why? Because we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our soul who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Therefore, we fear no evil. And knowing that this good shepherd was willing to lay down his life for for the sheep gives us the freedom to take on that attitude of submission, even if it means we're going to get treated unjustly. At Ecclesia, we have six statement values as a church, six value statements. And one of those stated values is that we are a church that proclaims the gospel. We believe that the church's primary mission is to make disciples of all all nations through the proclamation of the gospel. For there is no other name under heaven by which we are saved but the name of Jesus. So this is our stated value, Ecclesia, to proclaim the gospel. But I want to ask you this morning, is that truly a value we hold as a church, or is it just something that we put on our website or tell people at a connect class? Do we value the proclamation of the gospel so much that we would be willing to give up our comfort for it? 
Do we value the proclamation of the gospel so much that we would be willing to give up our rights and our freedoms for it? Do we value the proclamation of the gospel so much that we would be willing to suffer injustice for it? Do we value the proclamation of the gospel so much that we'd be willing to lay down our very lives for it? Jesus did. Jesus valued your salvation so much that he gave up his rights as God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men, and he died on the cross for you and for me. Ecclesia, may we follow the example of Jesus. May we be a church that doesn't say that we value the proclamation of the gospel, but we demonstrate it by our submission and by our humility, and by our sacrifice. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.